0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In her new book, Epiphany in the Wilderness, Hunting, Nature, and Performance in the 19th Century American West, historian Karen Jones uses the metaphor of the theater to argue that the West was a crucial stage that framed the performance of the American character as an independent, resourceful, resilient, and rugged individual. The leading actor was the all-conquering masculine hunter hero, the sharpshooting man of the wilderness, who framed and claimed the West with each providence step. And women were also a significant part of the story. We're going to talk about uh, much included in the book today, including gun culture, gender adaptations, also wildlife management and consumption, memorializing and trophy-taking, and the juxtaposition of a closing frontier with an emerging conservation movement. Karen Jones is a historian of the American West with particular interest in 19th century cultural and environmental history. Her books include Wolf Mountains, The History of Wolves Along the Great Divide, The Invention of the Park, and The American West, Competing Visions. She is senior lecturer in the School of History at the University of Kent in the UK and joins us for the program. Karen Jones, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah.
1: Thank you very much. I'm very, very uh, pleased to be with you uh, this morning, or my afternoon, your Your,
0: your <laughs> afternoon. I think it's about a seven-hour difference. Are, are you joining us from Kent?
1: I am, yep. Okay. Yeah, where it stopped raining and uh, the sun's just going down.
0: <laughs> well, we've had some snow overnight, some ni- nice powdery snow, so I guess it's that's, that's appropriate. Um, <laughs> I wonder, uh, f- first of all, uh, what got you interested in hunting in the American West as a field of study?
1: Mm. Well that's a very good question. I mean I uh, uh, your your listeners are probably wondering how um you know a, a a woman from England could could find herself um thrown into this this question. But I mean my own background I, I grew up in um I grew up in my own west uh, the west of England in in Wiltshire. Um so I've, I've I have a grew up in a, a rural community and um my first encounters with with hunting were really courtesy of my grandmother, who um, used to raise pheasants uh, in, in the woods around her house. Um, so I suppose my my engagement with hunting um, as a child was um, seeing kind of uh, pheasants and other game birds running uh, across the, the, the trails in front of me. But, you know, nothing is... Um, uh big and imposing as a as a bear or a wolf, I'm afraid. The uh the the, <laughs> the wild landscapes of, of England are a bit more tame um, <laughs> That's right. than 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 the US West. Um but I suppose that was quite a, a formative time for me and and I remember enjoying spending time in those woodlands and um sort of having my own uh wilderness adventures of, of sorts, I suppose. Um, and then I really I, I I sort of forgot about that and 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 um, started off on on my academic career, which brought me back eventually to questions of of the environment and um, and particularly national parks and wildlife conservation in 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 the U.S. West. And it was part of this project, really, that uh, by by looking at wildlife and looking at the the creation of parks. Landscapes that I encountered the the hunter first of all, the late nineteenth century hunter, and and gradually from a, a subsidiary character in in some of my earlier works, uh, this this personality came to the fore, um, and, and 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 took centre stage um, as as you you put it um, in in this book.
0: And I uh, I was interested to uh, I grew up in the in the west at Eastern Utah and mm. in, in Vernal. And uh, a lot of these themes resonate with, with me. You know, I hadn't thought about it this way, but I grew up in a community where hunting was was very much center stage. High school would close down for several days during deer hunt. Mm. You know, Everybody was, yeah. was off, so it was very interesting to, to encounter uh, some of the underpinnings of this. We'll get into that, of course, as we go along. Uh, before we jump in, I want to have you read a passage from the beginning from your introduction. Um, but I noticed in your acknowledgments that you are the proud uh, owner of a jackalope.
1: Yes which this which is I've true. encountered in um in I'm, I'm actually at work at the moment, but in my my study in my den at home i've got um a, a british fox and a and a jackalope on the wall, none which i can <laughs> neither of which I can claim to have um have, uh, have shot myself, but um i think they 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 carried their own. Sort of inspirations into this project, definitely.
0: For people who don't know, jackalope is a mythical creature. It's crossed between yeah. a jackrabbit and an antelope, so it's basically a jackrabbit with, with antlers. You and you can find yes. these. You can find yes, these which, uh, all over in the west. it
1: is um, particularly enticed by whiskey. Which sounds a sensible animal, really. Yeah.
0: To me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Uh, so I wonder, uh, get us into the, the the topic here. I wonder if you could re- read this uh, for us. This is the opening passage. This is quite the story here. So the the first uh, first page, and then over the first full paragraph into the next page there. So pages three and yeah, four. Yeah, sure.
1: Okay. Um, so the the section begins uh, is entitled "The West: Storytelling Animals and the Hunt as Performance." One bright winter day in 1873, William Doc Carver stepped out onto the plains at Frenchman Creek to defend his credentials as a hunter hero of the plains against Buffalo Curly. Carver, a dentist and hide hunter, boasted in confident tones how he had killed 30,000 bison and had defended his honor as a sharpshooter many times before. Curly, a known reprobate from Texas, bristled with a competitive edge, egged on by the market hunters he was camped with nearby, who were particularly aggrieved at competing with Carver for buffalo hide. It was they who had put up the $500 prize for the competition, appointed judges, and ordered ammunition and horses from the Union Pacific. News of the contest provoked significant interest. Amassed were hundreds of onlookers, a curious assemblage of trappers, skin hunters, wolfers and local Pawnee and Sioux from the White Clay Agency, along with a contingent of soldiers and ladies from Fort McPherson. The crowd waited with bated breath as the bison herd moved into view, their coats glimmering with frost particles, snorts from their nostrils producing clouds of vapour in the cold air. As the shaggy beasts entered the river to drink, Carver, Curly and their entourage of Indian scorers, charged with the task of shooting arrows into the fallen, then attaching feathers marking each man's kill tally, galloped at the draw. The referee fired a pistol shot, the herd stampeded, and the game was on. Carver, who, who cut quite a sartorial presence on his favourite steed surprise, wearing a red shirt and tossing his alban hair, claimed first blood and soon got ahead. Those watching the Malay saw Doc disappear over the bluff, leaving Curly outpaced and his horse spent. As the judges counted Carver's Hall some 160 animals, Curly's score intriguingly was not recorded. Doc paused at a buffalo wallow to fill his hat with water and pour it over his wearied horse. As the crowd cheered uproariously, Carvel was crowned champion buffalo hunter of the plains.
0: That's extraordinary. And there, there's a lot of themes there. Um, yeah, yeah. Wh- one of which is is I, maybe gets us into. And I'll ask you this here: Why did you choose to the, this metaphor of the theatre? Metaphor. Ah, of yeah. Well, it, it,
1: it seemed to be something that that just um, came through in in the. In the testimonials, one of the great things, one of the things I enjoyed most about this project, um, which I've been working on probably for the last um, 10, 10, 11, 12 years, I suppose in total, was the chance to read uh, 19th century diaries and and all the published accounts of, of Hunting on the Plains. And, and really this idea of theatrics and performance came through from all of that um, Testimonial culture, I, I suppose, as I became more and more enmeshed in this story, um, I realized that that performance uh, in in the hunting arena happened on on two levels: uh, firstly, in terms of, of of practice on on the game trail that um, you know, hunters approach their their quests with uh, ritual and, and, and significance. Um, and, and even described their endeavors very much in, in performance terms. To, to give you an example, there's a, a chap I talk about quite a lot in, in the book, George Shields, who's a, a accomplished hunter who writes a couple of travel logs, one called Rustlings in the Rockies and one called Cruising in the Cascades. Um, he writes one and then he he writes another because he, he does quite well with the first one, so he thinks, oh, actually, you know, this is this is this is good you know people people are interested in what i have to say um and he he describes in in these books the w- the ways in which he approaches the game trail and he he talks very much in theatrical terms there's one uh, one story he tells when he's in pursuit of a, an elk um that he 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 kills um and he goes on to talk about this this animal as a as a fallen hero and as he's as he's looking down at the at, at the elk, he he says, um, the great monster was dead. Talk about great acting! And and there are many many examples like this that I found in which these protagonists are actually deliberately using that um, performance um, sort of story to explain their their endeavours while they're uh, uh, on the on the hunt as 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 such. Uh, and then afterwards, what as I became more and more involved in this in this project, it seemed to me that there was one story to be told about the the practice of hunting and the engagement with the landscape. And there was another story to be told about how that that tale, um, and I mean the the idea of the the hunter's tall story, I think, has has sort of passed into into popular folklore as um, as something that that we're uh, amused and entertained by. But but actually in, in the story of the West, this this hunting tale is is reenacted in various spaces. Um, George Shields talks about how he likes to sit in, uh, at the close of day around the campfire, reciting his triumphs to his his fellow hunters. Um, and so it seemed to me that after the hunt had finished, whether that was in in oral testimony or literature or art or even in in taxidermy, the that story of the hunt is sort of captured and Memorialised and, and played out in these in these settings, which are uh, consciously curated and, and designed to communicate to a to a broader um, audience. That's that's both about sort of personal memory, but also this much larger collective memory. Um, and so that's why performance and theatre seemed. Seems a good tool to to navigate the story of the hunt through practice to um, to recital and communication.
0: If you just joined us, we are talking with Karen Jones, who teaches at uh, University of Kent in the UK. That's where we've uh, reached her, and her new book is "Epiphany in the Wilderness: Hunting, Nature, and Performance in the Nineteenth-Century American West." And she uses the uh, um, theater as a metaphor. Um, to argue that the West was a crucial stage that framed the performance of the American character. And we're all familiar with this. Uh, that we, I think we like to embrace this as an independent, resourceful, resilient, and rugged individual. Uh, we're going to hear some more stories. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk about, Curran uh, Jones talks about three types of hunting. Um, subsistence hunting, hunting for food. Uh, industrial hunting, um, you know, e- economy hunting. And sport hunting, and uh, she concentrates uh, a lot on that last one, but does, does treat uh, the other two. And I want to talk about the second one, industrial hunting. Um, when we come back, I want to talk about that. And this is a startling statistic, quoting Karen Jones now. Three million bison were killed during the 1872 to 1874 period, so what, two or three years. Um, a, a figure, as commentator William Black noted, equivalent to half the cattle in Great Britain. I want to talk about that and, of course, uh, much more following the break. Kids are better than adults at picking up new languages. We know that. So what about kids writing computer code? This is a lucrative and interesting pathway, and let's expose our kids to this early. I'm Kai Rizdahl, Cybersecurity training for kids next time on Marketplace. We'll have that and the rest of the day's business news. It's from APM. Join us tonight at 630 on Utah Public Radio. Coming up at 10 o'clock on the first Zesty Garden of the year, Diane Alston is in studio to take your questions or comments. We'll first look at how cocooned wasp larvae are doing the Mexican jumping bean dance to find cool spots and to protect themselves. And don't look now, but even if you took a shower this morning, you've probably got mites on your face that are digesting any dead skin cell that they can find. It's the Zesty Garden, 10 o'clock every Thursday morning here
1: on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for joining us for Axis Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking with Karen Jones, her new book, out from Colorado uh, University Press. Um, University Press of Colorado. I'll get it. I'll get it right. Finally, here, uh, it's called "Epiphany in the Wilderness: Hunting, Nature, and Performance in the 19th Century American West." You're welcome to join the conversation. I'd love to get your take on uh, some of these themes and uh, maybe your experiences. I think some of these themes have followed us through. Uh, here to our current uh, time. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495 is the toll-free number, and you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, access at uh, gmail.com. Karen Jones, I want to talk about this uh, one strain of hunting, which was industrial hunting, uh, which almost wiped out the bison, for one example. this And, and reading your book really drove home the point this was industrial supported by the railroad let me just read this a startling passage when rifles became too hot to use they were cooled in streams doused with canteens of water uh, or urinated on this exercise in butchery ended with the packers loading carts and shipping the stripping the carcasses before transit to camp and on by steamer uh, <laughs> that's extraordinary this was on an industrial scale millions of bison killed
1: absolutely yeah and i think it's i mean that uh, coming from from england that statistic that you mentioned um before the break of uh, you know the the equivalent to um half the cattle in in, in england is it yeah it, it just just gives that um uh, kind of uh, a comparison which it is it is remarkable i think the 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 speed and the the extent of of this um killing of bison is 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 pretty extra- extraordinary um and i think it you know it speaks to um a, a story about the west which is, is is a technological one um you know about the capacity of 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 newer and and more effective firearms about the importance of transportation and the railroad of bringing hunters in but then also um the ways in which the the bison was uh, an animal of enterprise to to quote um environmental historian richard white that you know this is an animal um w- uh, which is it, the, the pelts and the furs have a, an economic value uh, the bones are ground down to be used as fertilizer and so you know people are seeing the, the potential of translating these animals into into dollar signs and and you know nobody can really envisage a time when these vast herds which uh you know are so large at some point that uh trains had to stop for them to to pass across the tracks um f- you know for days on end then you know people don't really anticipate that this this resource could ever be exhausted
0: i wonder if you could paint us the picture that the i don't know if there's any equivalent at all i kind of doubt it mm. of, of what you know a, a say uh um person coming from the east or a European coming over um coming to some of this frontier land and seeing these teeming herds of bison and, and, and other animals, just as far yeah, as the eye can yeah. see. I wonder if you'd paint that we, picture. And for again,
1: us. one of the one of the really fascinating and captivating parts of this project and it, and it's something which is not just accessible to the the professional historian, but anybody who, you know, wants to go to an antiquarian bookshop or, or or to um an internet database and and read these testimonials, you can get such a sense of that past landscape through reading how these people, you know, they come over a bluff and they see this astonishing herd of animals that they've you know, they've read about and they've they've dreamt about and sort of seen in their mind's eye, but nothing really prepares them for that uh, direct engagement. And I think, you know, we're very used to having up-close, uh, intimate, uh, armchair views of animals in, in the early 21st century. You know, we can look at our um, uh, Discovery Channel or our BBC documentaries and see, um, you know, wonderful impressions of all these amazing species but in the in the 19th century you know that to happen upon an animal like that for the first time it, it must have been quite remarkable
0: and then then the the scale and like I said I don't I don't know if we can mm. even get that by going to one of our national parks you know you go to Yellowstone you see you can see quite a few if you encounter a, a herd of you know, bison or, or whatever it might be, yeah, but it yeah. probably just can't get that scale. I wanted to ask about that. This, it's you could call it an overabundance. Just uh, as you say, the, the contemporaries maybe didn't even recognize that it was impossible to kill off all the bison. But I wonder, I wonder the the teeming herds of animals and this this overabundance of of game. Uh, I, I don't know how do, how do you think that affected the the myth, the you know the national narrative.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the uh, one of the things I'm I am i am interested in um exploring in this book is the idea of a hunter's paradise that the west becomes strongly identified um both with the idea of a utopian landscape that you know you, you can find everything you want in the west whether that's um extraordinarily productive farmland or huge trees or um Immense herds of animals that sort of promise and uh, fertility and abundance are all enshrined within what what the West means. And I think um, this the story of Hunter's Paradise plays into this broader tale of uh, of uh, this cornucopian landscape um, uh, in in terms of the the quantity of animals, the variety of new species that people are encountering the um, you know, it sort of all, all all fits together to contribute to that sort of grander mythology of the West, and uh, and particularly as a place of, uh, of of later on in the 19th century of of, of wilderness um, to be appreciated, and then you know much later on to be protected when people realise that that these populations aren't um, you know eternally um, renewing.
0: I, I was going to ask you about that. When, when did the conservation ethic begin to take center stage? Was it when people realized, oh, well, you know, we, we might kill off all the bison, or you know, yeah, other yeah.
1: Well, it's. I mean, I think it's always quite difficult to find. I think mean, historians are always wanting to find the the roots of things, but but actually, normally, the more and more we get into these questions, the more thorny finding an answer is. And I, I suppose you can find all sorts of of, of beginning points for. For conservation from um you know looking at the experiences and the the um, behaviors of indigenous peoples to looking at the kind of conservation rituals and ethics that that exist in in Europe and the hunting traditions of a very managed landscape but in in terms of the American West sort of specifically, I would say you know um a, a definitive conservation mentality. Is, is generated first uh, among um, the, the the sporting fraternity, um, men like uh, Theodore Roosevelt, um, George Grinnell, uh, individuals who are, are keen hunters but, but see the, the limits to sustainability, I suppose we would say in, 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 in um, modern language, that, that actually if... Particularly, the industrial slaughter of animals was allowed to continue on um, unchecked. That, that that these species would would disappear. They'd be, you know, consigned to history. Um, and it is the the bison is, I think, a a really particular marker um, in their consciousness because of the the numbers which previously existed and and the speed of their decline. It you know it really does make people sit up and and, and think when. There's that sort of stark example in front
0: of them. If you just joined us, we're talking with Karen Jones, who's senior lecturer in the School of History at the University of Kent in the UK. That's where we've reached her. And uh, we have her with us for the hour, talking about her new book uh, out from University Press of Colorado called Epiphany in the Wilderness, Hunting, Nature, and Performance in uh, the 19th Century American West. And I just want to give credit to University Press of Colorado, acknowledges generous support of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University toward the publication of this book. Just to give them a mention, Uh, you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. I wonder what your experience with hunting is like to get your experience. And uh, do these themes resonate? Do you think they come down to our time? 1-800-826-1495 or upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com is another way uh, that, that you can reach us. Uh, so, Kern Jones, uh, you mentioned Theodore Roosevelt, and um, uh, you know, when I picked up the book, I thought, well, Theodore Roosevelt's got to appear here somewhere. Um, <laughs> he, he's, he's, he's an archetype uh, in, yes. in, in our minds of, of a man who went to the West to test himself.
1: Mm, absolutely.
0: Is that typical of a lot of the people who went out West?
1: Uh, I think it probably depends which which group of people. I mean, certainly, if I think you, you could broadly conclude that that everybody who who um, who migrated westward ended up facing challenges and and and, and difficulties and um, uh, you, you know uh, uh, complexities of of one sort or another, whether they thought that or whether. That just kind of happened in, in, in circumstance. But I, I certainly think that for a group of um, uh, sport hunters in, in particular, uh, the idea of of the West as a proving ground, as a as a, a place which is sort of situated beyond civilization, um, where these individuals went to, uh, uh prove their masculinity to sort of find themselves in in some fashion to to test themselves against different game particularly if they were traveling from from uh, from Europe um you know all of these the, these are part of the, the the sort of metaphysical musings of the the sport hunters who who are enticed by um, Westward travel, uh, of which um, Roosevelt is certainly certainly one, and, and you know this. I think this speaks to the um, you know the urban industrial environment of the the late or the latter years of the 19th century, where you know people are broadly concerned about the the impacts of industrialization on their their health and their well-being and their sort of uh, general vigour. Um, and so, you know, outdoor sports of all different kinds are seen as a as a great antidote to staving off the the, the inertia of of uh, of urbanity, and 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 hunting as a as a sport becomes very much part of this um, this sort of recreational discourse. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly, the you know, some of the hunters, the, the masculine hunter heroes, I call them in the book, who who go west, talk very keenly about. Um, Testing themselves against uh, weather, against uh, environments, and of course against animals, which are sort of positioned as, as um, you know, opponents, worthy opponents to be uh, quested after and, and then hopefully claimed.
0: Seems like that. I don't know to to my sensibility or or in my observations. It seems like maybe there's a divide between our time and and that time. In, in that maybe there'd be a lot more people in our time who would be, be a little bit puzzled by this. You need, you'd go out to nature, yes. get away from industrialization, revere these animals, and kill them on a yes. <laughs> on a yes. large scale. And therein lies a kind of a, a, a paradox, a, a conflict in just the idea of hunting.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. And I think you know one of the when I started this project, one of the things—and and this was where the 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 epiphany title came from—one of the things I was first interested in was finding characters who'd gone to the 19th century, um, the, the Rocky Mountain West, um, got involved in in this sort of hunting crusade, and then had a sort of moment of of, of uh, ethical revelation and thought, actually, no, this isn't this isn't the way I want to. Um, uh, encounter the animal. And, you know, there are examples of this. Uh, we could look to um, Aldo Leopold's famous encounter with a, a wolf in Arizona in, in, in the interwar period where he sort of looks at what he calls the fierce green fire dying in the eyes of this wolf. And this makes him think about the value of predatory animals and, and actually the the caveats to... Uh, Culling um, and and the, the sort of the benefits of of balance and and ecological perspective. So so I did I go I went out looking I suppose for people that had a twentieth or twenty first century environmental sensibility in in the nineteenth um, because yeah you're right that that sense of non consumptive use of wildlife going out and photographing or going hiking whatever it is I think, much more uh, familiar in the modern environmental canon. Um, But one of the things I think was probably like my own epiphany, if you like, was uh, when I became more and more involved in this 19th century world, I realized that actually the rules of, of engagement and the rules of environmental consciousness, if you could call it that then, were rather different. And and what I began to understand was maybe that hunting and conservation uh, are not contradictions in terms. And and actually these individuals who had to learn how to uh, understand these animals and and follow them and um, spent a a lot of time in that environment had actually a a great appreciation for them. and I, you know, I think that it is very hard for people who are non-hunters to see the the necessity, if you like, of the kill in in that equation. And and you know, in the book, I talk about um, a contingency of people who hang up their rifle and, and end up going out with a camera because they too are enmeshed in this sort of ethical decision about, well, how do I want to uh, engage with my prey is is it is it enough to or is it more difficult to take a picture than than take home a trophy so um in a way these are modern questions, but what I found is people grappling with those questions in the nineteenth century um as well as you know a a, a a much more nuanced and an ethically sophisticated perspective that it, that exists existed particularly among the the, I suppose what I would call the sporting naturalists um, who became really keen figures in, in the conservation community as part of their their hunting activities.
0: And uh, as I've been mentioning, uh, some of these themes as I was reading the book resonate today. And Obviously, some of these would, would, would come down to us. One that uh, I was thinking about and thinking back to when I was a young man in, in Vernal in eastern Utah, Mm. Um, uh, my family—I wasn't raised as a hunter. We didn't go hunting, but many of my friends did, and it was—it was just part of the family culture. And it seemed mm. to me, looking from the outside, that this definitely was a rite of passage. This was the yeah. way, part of the way, young men became men. Mm. They went out with their fathers, uncles, uh, what have you, and they hunted.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly when I looked at the. Uh, I think there's a sense in which that the hunting is a sort of everyday experience for for many people and and maybe that 's one of the reasons why it hasn't really been scrutinized that much because it sort of is under the radar but uh you're absolutely right in the in the the testimonial culture there's there's a real a narrative thread that talks about hunting as a way of uh claiming identity and belonging and and connection with with land and with people as well um and there's a real sense in which the whilst the hunt for some of these individuals is a is a physical journey it's also um a conceptual a psychological one too um just off off the top of my head i I can think of a uh, an example I talk about in the book uh, um a lawyer from Toronto who goes traveling. Uh, on a hunt in in the west, in the the Rocky Mountain west, in the 1880s, and he's, and he does I mean he doesn't really know one end of a gun from another, or one end of a grizzly bear from another, and he drops his handkerchief and goes back to collect it, and he moans about the itchiness of the grass and the mosquitoes and such like, um, and then after when he finishes and he comes back to the of to the town he sees himself in 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 the in a shop window and he he looks uh, he describes this sort of feral creature that's emerged from the west and um and he says in his journal you know i don't think I, actually my shooting improved a great deal but i've i've become a new man i've transformed myself and i've uh, i've learned something really quite um vital and and essential about my my character in, in this endeavor, so I think you're right there's a, there's um a real sense in which hunting is part of a, a rite of passage um, and that that certainly overwhelmingly th- the story of that is 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 a masculine one is about a brotherhood um not entirely. That's that's not the,
0: the entire story. Right, uh, and as well. Uh, as
1: well.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, well, we'll take a break here soon, and uh, when we come back, I want to have you read a passage uh, talking about a a woman and that uh, what okay. uh, what that narrative is in the West. I, I wanted to before we went to break. <clears throat> I want to just uh, treat another theme that definitely I see coming forward to uh, today's time, you, you talk about subsistence hunters, economy hunters, and sport hunters. There are sometimes conflicts between those mm. those groups, right? Mm. Uh, just quoting from you, um, local Western guides lampooned uh, foppish tenderfoots who came for their dose of wilderness adrenaline, and settlers set their, quote-unquote, rights to game against that of the indigent. That made me think of, again, back to eastern Utah and Bernal, I heard some grumblings among some of my friends about California hunters coming in. And this was <laughs> and California seemed to be the, the, the whipping boy uh, because the, yeah, the, it yeah. stood in for anybody who was not local was coming mm. in. And there, there'd be stories circulating about the, these California hunters didn't know how to do it. And um, so there's another I don't know if that conflict still goes on, at least in that place. Um, but uh, th- th- there were conflicts apparently among the groups.
1: Yeah, yeah and certainly that that comes through uh in the 19th century experience too and and on one level there's i suppose there's a a simple story about competition for resources which pits necessarily pits these these different resource users against one another. Um but then you know there's there's also the the problem of interaction and and, and encounter because all of these uh different kinds of hunters Meet together um and so and there are there are some great tales of of, of one upmanship of of guides uh, uh sort of proving their western identity and their their knowledge and their their woodcraft by highlighting the the idiocy of the you know the, the visiting hunter who's just there for just you know just there for a trophy and and doesn't actually really know what what he's he's doing so you know there is a sense in which um that sort of knowledge is, is bound up with the hunting experience and um and it's a way of positioning yourself as an insider um or uh, equally though that uh, it seems to be that people who are traveling to uh hunt from a, a long distance away they kind of can claim a part of that space and story just by by being there and and, and taking their trophy home. So it's, I think it's um, a sort of a, a real puzzle to see these constituencies which are pitted against each other at times, but they also sometimes all sit around the campfire together. I think probably the the real tensions come when um, animals are more scarce, and, and then you do get really protracted um, tensions between different groups, and you know, that really go to the heart of um, ownership and who owns what and who has the right to do what in in, in different spaces.
0: And those conflicts uh, definitely happen uh, today in, in the West. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll take yeah. a break and we'll come back with Karen Jones, who is senior lecturer in the School of History at the University of Kent in the United Kingdom. That's where we've reached her. We'll come back with a, one last segment talking about her new book, Epiphany in the Wilderness, Hunting, Nature, and Performance in the 19th Century American West. I want to talk about women in the West. We'll have you read a passage. Uh, talk about trophy taking and what the the afterlife of animals, what that means and um, and and the idea and how this changed i'm going to qu- quote this thomas jefferson his ideal of course was the agrarian republic and the yeoman farmer and uh, the ideal didn't necessarily include hunting at least hunting on a large scale but that had changed uh, about 100 years later i want to talk about that and how that's come through to today more following the break <laughs>
1: Did you know that a child doesn't need to specialize early in a sport to become an elite player? Parents and coaches may believe their child needs to pick one sport and stick with it from the beginning, but early sports specialization doesn't necessarily make a child a star player later on. So much about the child's adult body size hasn't been determined yet, and the child's adult height and body shape will influence what sport she is best suited for. When young athletes are starting out, it is healthy for them to experiment with different sports. When they do, they're able to get the exercise, social interaction, and fun that attracted them to sports in the first place.
0: This segment of Did You Know That? has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Karen Jones. She is a senior lecturer in the School of History at the University of Kent in the United Kingdom. Her new book out from University Press of Colorado is called Epiphany in the Wilderness, Hunting, Nature, and Performance in the 19th Century American West. And uh, she says, uh, using the metaphor of the theater, that the West was a crucial stage that framed the performance of the American character as an independent, resourceful, resilient, and rugged individual. We're talking about various aspects of hunting, concentrating mostly on 19th century America. And we do have an email uh, come in from Steve. In Arizona, uh, You can join us as well. We'd love to get your perspective at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can email us to upraxcess at, at gmail.com, Here's Steve's email. He says, I'm rereading Marguerite Yourcenar's Memoirs of Hadrian, which uh, in the first chapter contains a long rumination about the nature of hunting and its importance to man's identity and that in tandem with this morning's interview which I came to late is a reminder that hunting has been a rite of passage going back to the neolithic neolithic that's uh, Steve's uh, comment what do you think Karen Jones
1: well yeah i think it's absolutely true i mean you know the, uh, the 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 um my book is is one small um chunk of 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 that hunting story but but this is a much much broader tale that, that encompasses many different cultures and, and many different uh, regions of the world
0: um, I want to pick up that and you know move it forward from the Neolithic now to Thomas Jefferson and then on forward mm. uh, so your your comment fits right in uh, Steve thanks for that um, so you point out in your introduction that Thomas Jefferson's ideal was the agrarian Republic and the yeoman farmer of course and mm. uh, a person living in nature would would balance everything ideally And uh, while cultivating a certain, quote, boldness, enterprise, and independence to the mind, and, quote, hunting smacked of barbarism and primitive civilization... That, that you say was Thomas Jefferson's view. And then you go on to say, 100 years on, things looked a little different. President Theodore Roosevelt was dressing in buckskin to play the big game hunter across two continents. Buffalo Bill Cody and Annie Oakley, the first American superstars. Wild audiences on both sides of the Atlantic with their sharp shooting skills. Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis celebrated the hunting shirt and Pioneer Cabin as foundational artifacts of American identity. And hunters were performing everywhere. So, I guess the first question on mm. this is what what changed? What happened?
1: Well, that's a really good question, and, and I guess what happened is is the the conquest of the West, the nineteenth century experience, which um, transformed the hunter from being this sort of uh, throwback, a, a look back to hunter gatherer societies of uh, that, that were primitive and, and destined to kind of disappear. Um, to a, a rather different figure, a figure that exemplified um, what, what Frederick J- Jackson Turner called that, you know, the contest between um, civilization and, and wilderness. So, sort of in in uh, moving into the West and and um, engaging in that. Process of uh, encounter with 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 landscapes and animals and, and, and forging communities. You know the hunter is invested with this um, really important national mantle as a as a hero figure, and and that heroic mantle goes on to uh, take Roosevelt to to uh, a presidential career, uh, to take Bill Cody all the way. Um, you know over over. To Hyde Park to perform in front of Queen Victoria. So you know the the hunter and the cowboy and the frontiersman and and these characters become uh, central uh, to the kind of the the mythological configuration of the West um, that that emerges during the 19th century.
0: As you say, you you feel that uh, you argue that hunting was important to establishing the our nato, national myth, the American national myth. And and it, I don't know, so ingrained, we don't think about it all that much. Uh, but mm. we do embrace it, I think, independent, resourceful, resilient, rugged individual. So my my question on this is, uh, you have an interesting perspective. You're, you know, you're there in the U.K. <laughs> I do know <laughs> <laughs> some other, you know, um, nationalities sort of view uh, our national myth of, uh, well, they don't revere it the way we do. Let me put it that way, yeah. with some scepticism. <laughs> I wonder how that is viewed in, in Europe.
1: Well, I suppose it, 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 depends. it depends who you ask. I mean, I, I know, for instance, that just up the road from me in, in North Kent, uh, um, some reenactors have built this recreation of, of a wild west town um you know in their spare time and have populated it with buildings and 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 uh sort of play high noon there so you know the 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 old traditional frontier myth as as propagated by hollywood western is um you know goes down very very well in in, in europe and i think um certainly when i talk to my students they're just really enraptured by the same kind of things that uh the the, the perennial appeal of something which is escaping from the everyday that the the freedom of action the grand landscapes you know all of that um has a, a uh an international appeal i think um but you know certainly uh in thinking about any period of his history in any region there you know there's that um, critical tone um, and i think when the the bison example is a really good example to, to show the ways in which you know if people are, are are looking for ways in which to to critique or to create national stereotypes they'll you know they'll they'll pick um pick their cases so um you know i think the west provides this this great folkloric story that has uh, a real translatable appeal but Look. it it, it also, it, you know, invites uh, critical voices to be able to sort of say, well, you know, I'm not really so sure about what um, the ethics of what went on there and what went on there.
0: And uh, certainly hunting, you know, I'll, I'll just leave this as a comment, I guess, to lay it out there. Mm. Hunting included, as you point out in your book, a certain uh, you know, military mindset. And, and mm-hmm. some would view, at least those who disagree with recent American foreign policy, would, would, would see a strain there moving forward and would disapprove of that. But uh, I, want to, I want to give you time here to, uh, to read a passage uh, dealing with women in the West. Uh, the all-conquering mm-hmm. masculine hunter hero is, is the hero of the story, but women were also a significant part of the, the story. Uh, you have a passage, I believe, uh, dealing with a woman called Elizabeth Byrd
1: yeah yeah who was um a a british traveler she wasn 't actually interestingly bird wasn 't a hunter herself she she had a um, she was very ambivalent about about the actual process of hunting she didn 't really like guns very much she carried a, a pistol with her, but she couldn 't imagine a context in which she would ever use this, even though she traveled on her own through the rocky mountains um, but at the same time she was really interested in uh the, the the west and and the hunter and and this the whole romance of it and um, so that this is what i i had to say about her uh for the lady adventurer the west afforded the same benefits of healthful recreation that attracted her make, male cohorts with the added enticements of vaulting conventional gender boundaries isabella bird the 42 year old daughter of a yorkshire clergyman visited the american west in 1872-3 seeking in its remote scenery and adventuring prospect a relief from the chattering confinement of English society. A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains, published in 1879, saw her gleefully report on an intrepid 800-mile trek across the unprofaned freshness of a Rocky Mountain landscape that was no region for tourists or women. Bird encountered a frontier economy saturated with the economic and social trappings of the hunt. She met emigrants armed with rifles in case they fell in with game, as well as Welsh settlers who divided their time between stalking game and stock raising. She also spent time in the mountains with fur trappers, including Mountain Jim, a one-eyed ruffian, whom she encountered while overwintering with a neighbouring family. Denver seemed literally awash with creatures of the chase, hunters and trappers, and this is a quote, hunters and trappers in buckskin suits, men of the plains in huge blue cloaks with belts and revolvers, teamsters in leather suits, horsemen in fur coats and caps and buffalo hide boots, brooding dandies, rich English tourists. Bird eagerly imbibed of this hunter's paradise. Waxing lyrical on the intoxicating qualities of an outdoors life, sleeping under the pines and spending time on horseback, especially riding astride on a Mexican saddle, which cured the backache she had suffered from since childhood.
0: Yeah, sounds like a fascinating individual. It, it, it does, her descriptions do make it attractive. You, you know, yes. <laughs> you, you want to get out there. Uh,
1: That's true. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. I, I want to talk about you. You, you talk about gun culture mm. as a whole, as a part of this. For for many, you know, for 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 much of the story here, I wonder if you just briefly talk about gun culture
1: here. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, I think what I was keen to do in this book is is to to deal with the 19th century context uh, without falling into the sort of uh, the the polemic about. The rights and wrongs of, of hunting and guns, but it's it's fairly impossible to talk about hunting without talking about firearms. Um, not just in terms of the the technological impetus, and you know I think this is um, this is an important part of of the environmental impact of hunting, but also the way in which hunters, in their narratives, craft all these. Tales and stories around guns, so they almost become characters in their own right they 're given names um, One hunter uh, William Allen talks about how his his uh, Winchester rifle is speaking to the to the game that he's pursuing so there's this again this sort of performance code that i 'm talking about is extended um, to to the to the gun that 's not just a a tool of um, of of uh, environmental engagement, but there's also this rhetorical device and this sort of um, object which is in- invested with this huge symbolic meaning.
0: We will have to leave it there. We'll we'll have to talk about taxidermy another day. And, uh, <laughs> oh,
1: anytime. <laughs> <and> <laughs> you, you've
0: gone to taxidermy class, I read, and you've, you you uh, you posed a mouse.
1: Yes, I did. I did. I went to London to a, a to, to a taxidermy class. Um, which in itself was quite uh, an interesting um, a- event. Just watching the other people who who showed up to um, produce their own um, pieces of art. Uh, I had to catch the the, the train home um, and left my mouth drying uh, gently on the on the counter and was told it would be posted to me, but it never arrived. <laughs> so I'm I'm concerned that you know some poor unsuspecting individual opened their post only to find this. This flamouse, <laughs> quite, and they're quite expecting a, something rather different
0: <laughs> quite a surprise uh, <laughs> Epiphany in the wilderness is the title of the book uh, Karen Jones is the author and she has joined us for the program from Kent in the United Kingdom thank you so much
1: thank you very much it's been a pleasure
0: coming up tomorrow of course behind the headlines from the Salt Lake Tribune and uh, coming up next hope you'll join us uh, uh, for uh, Brian Earl that is coming up thanks for listening today This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, hd one Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Utah Public Radio is a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University.